Hi, this is Peter Francho, your state comptroller in Maryland. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we are still social distancing. We were back in the office a few weeks ago, but cases have begun to spike a bit here in Anne Arundel and across the state, so we are back to social distancing. But how's everything going in the Sanderson household? Doing okay. We're staying smart. When we're out, we're wearing masks. We're trying to pay attention to all the smart people giving us guidance and uh, just be wise about all this. So how about you and your family? Doing very well, thank you. Same here, always wearing the mask, trying to to be smart. And I think that's what everybody's doing these days. But today on the podcast, we are going to talk about school reopening, and we're going to get into elections on the back half. And Michael, I'm very pleased today we have a special guest with us. We have Howard County Superintendent Dr. Michael Martirano. Dr. Martirano was named superintendent for Howard County Public School System in July 2018 after serving as interim superintendent since May 2017. He's an educator for more than 35 years, and he considers himself a teacher first and foremost. Dr. Martirano, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So Dr. Martirano, today we're going to focus on school reopening. It's obviously a topic that's on everyone's minds. We're pleased to have you have you with us, and I guess you know Howard County has just cast its lot in the last several days uh, for the first semester to open as a virtual offering and keeping an eye on on the path forward. We thought this was really timely. We've we've heard from a number of our listeners and members that the decision on school reopening is a really big pivot one for communities across the state. So we're glad to have you join us today and sort of walk us through sort of what your board and you had to grapple with in reaching this decision and, and what, what steps you're thinking about for the weeks and months ahead? I think first and foremost in Howard County, and I can speak for my colleagues in all the counties in the state of Maryland, that on March 13th, uh, 2020, uh, when, we, when the state superintendent closed schools, unprecedented in the history of our state, uh, that we were taking first and foremost the safety and well-being of our students and our staff uh, at the highest level of consideration in all of our decision-making, making, making certain that uh, students were taken care of by providing them with meals, by making certain that they were safe, by providing them with the necessary tools as we supported our teachers as well as they were building up to deliver instruction in a virtual way, which has never happened, and again, in the history of our school system. So as that continued, we are now in week 19. It's been 19 weeks since that date. We are now all grappling with the decisions to open schools. And again, my background is as is a science teacher, science and math teacher, leading with the science and understanding our data points, understanding where we are uh, with the number of cases and the percent of the spread in the state of Maryland and individual counties. And the ability to keep our students and staff safe was the predominant uh, matter in our thinking. So the Howard County Board made the decision to start virtually for the first uh, two quarters, 18 weeks. And with the understanding that I will reevaluate that decision as we get closer to uh, the end of the first semester. And again, looking at our data, because we want to make certain that all of our students and staff are safe. 
uh, as we build out a virtual model. Uh, so the thinking behind this has been predicated on solid data uh, around surveys we put out to our parents and staff, uh, the data regarding the health issues, communication with our health department, and making the very best decision that we can in this space right now. Actually, I think you, you just anticipated my, my first prompt question, which is having the, the data guide this probably has to be a mix of both the public health data from your health department and from the state and so forth on testing rates and positive rates and so forth, but then also parents and, and you know, the staff uh, perspectives and, and their concerns and so forth. Can you walk us through how you weigh all that stuff together? That's got to be a comp. There's no, there's no plug and play formula here, right, that says once it's at this percent, then we do X. You're absolutely right. I mean, we are operating under assumptions that we, that that shift in front of us, that there has been no guiding factors in the past uh, to guide us through this. So we are uh, creating our own data points uh, from surveys and information that we're receiving from our parents. Obviously, the data which we're looking at from the health department as far as the spread. And, and a piece which has been dominant uh, in this is the uh, polarizing eff effects of this from individuals who say, let's go to a completely normalized school and I will risk this, as opposed to the individuals on the other end of the continuum who say we need to remain in a completely virtual op option until a vaccine is available. That's the assurance uh, that individuals want. So using, we pushed out a survey that we had an incredible uh, response from our students, parents, and staff. And the indication was that over 60% of our staff our respondents were quite concerned or extremely concerned uh, about their own safety and well-being. And that was a, a guiding factor. And again, the amount of communications that come into all of our superintendents uh, from emails, formal, informal, uh, is creating that, uh, that database of information for us to make good decisions uh, in, the, in this time where there is no comparison to anything that we've done like this before. And you're certainly not alone in announcing your plan for the fall. I believe nine jurisdictions now have announced, and I believe that the jurisdictions, the school boards have until August 14th to submit their plans to the state. But let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges with bringing kids back to school in this environment. We all know that they'll have to maintain social distance on school buses, providing them with the proper personal protective equipment, students and teachers and staff, and just getting kids to wear a mask it right. sounds like a major undertaking, at least logistically, even when you take out ensuring the health of everybody involved. Yeah, all, all of that is absolutely critical. What we, if we were to bring young people back uh, into our schools, whether it's a, at a reduced rate of 50% percentage, whatever that would be, you still have the, the concerns of making certain that there's the proper personal protective equipment, better known in this environment as PPE. Uh, how do we social distance with children on a bus? Let's just start from the beginning when a child wakes up in the morning. Uh, expectation that they would take their temperature. Uh, if their child has their temperature and it's a higher level that they would stay at home. Questions have been raised. What if an individual family has so many concerns about working that the parents provide that child with Motrin that actually masks the effect of the temperature? How do we respond to that? So that has been a consideration. When a child gets on the bus, how do we provide that six feet of distance around? And if you look at our buses that hold 50 to 60 students, that would be maybe 10 students that we would transport. And how do we do that in an efficient and effective way as well? And then providing necessary masks and 
um, closing off water fountains, serving lunches in schools, and then understanding the developmental issues of young people who have to be trained and educated to wear a mask, which is extremely uh, challenging for adults, not to mention the developmental levels of young people who want to maybe just remove that constantly. So the management of just managing masks alone for teachers is a challenge. But more importantly, is providing the proper PPE and the funding that is not provided to do that. We're all struggling with our budgets across the state of Maryland, and there has not been a dedicated infusion of dollars just dedicated for PPE that is needed, uh, that has been a major point for our teachers. And then the science is still evolving regarding the possible spread for our students as carriers. So the bottom line for us is we want to take all the precautions that we could and we recognize that we're not in that space yet to provide all the things necessary. And that's what was another rationale for starting off in a virtual environment. Hearing you talk through this a little bit, we, we've all heard this old, you know, this old phrase about peeling an onion, that, that, that there's just always another layer below that. And yep. th- this reminds me of, of that kind of circumstance, the logistics of going back to school in going back to in-person schooling, even in a limited or phased in or scheduled way, just seems like it has a whole cascade of challenges. And and that's not, I mean, I, I think we want to shift gears in a moment and talk about the related challenges that will come with remote learning. But, but for the moment, you mentioned school buses, and I'm just like the arithmetic of that Right. Seems almost insoluble, doesn't it? If, if you're like, a 50 person bus can only hold 12 kids or something like that. Right. right. I mean, do you are, are there enough actual school buses in the state of Maryland to if, if we had half the kids going back to school on Mondays and Thursdays? Do we have any way to get them to a school building? Look, I mean, you, you talk about, we all have our analogies to help make sense of this during this time. <laughs> and you talked about peeling the onion. I'm, I'm a science teacher by trade, and I'm constantly talking about uh, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Every uh-huh. time we make a move, uh, there, is a, there are t- 10 or 20 additional reactions to those moves. You can't get solid footing, and we're working our way through that. Just focus on the buses alone and all the logistics that have to go into that. And if we're going to have a reduction to meet social distancing, you have to take into account that who drives our buses? We already have a shortage of personnel. Who drives our buses are a lot of time individuals who are retired and over the age of 60. So how do we provide plexiglass around the bus drivers? How do we provide the assurance that they're going to be safe in in an environment where there's already a shortage of personnel? having kids enter the bus, if we don't want them to interact, we now have to load the bus back to front so that they're not passing anybody. And then we have to exit the bus front to back. Just that within itself and the six feet creates a whole conundrum of things that have to be unpacked to ensure that that occurs. And then the issue of the efficiencies, how do we keep making runs to go back and get students in that environment creates another logistical issue that is all predicated on funding as well. We don't have a, an, an unending source of funding for transportation and fuel and what needs to occur. So that within itself is a prime example to explain the logistical challenges that we're all having to work through as we customize education in the future. Right. And yeah, Newton strikes again. I think your analogy is very apt. Um, and, and I guess all of those logistics 
start with an assumption that you can have the participating actors follow the rules all the time and stay in their lanes and just go to their assigned seat in the bus and maintain their distance and so forth. And we see that that's enough of a challenge with adults, um, with development age kids. You just have to imagine this is exponentially harder, as you've mentioned. And and that's making the assumption that everything is going, every child is going to operate within those confines. And we know (laughs) that we're dealing with young people who are beautiful, uh, but they present themselves in different ways. uh, And that's why they're in school to provide those, that guidance. And it creates challenges developmentally along that continuum. So I I, I guess just uh, we're recording on Thursday and just yesterday, the governor and the state superintendent of schools made a public announcement about a, a range of different things, but among them, the, the pending plans for school reopening in the fall. And I mean, we're, we're still trying to process that, but I, I guess the principal takeaway for you and other decision makers in the school systems is wisely develop your local plans. There's not going to be a state template that says you must do A or B, or you can only choose this if that. Am I right. am I reading that correctly, or is there some guidance sort of under um, uh, under the skin level there? Well, I I, can, I know I can speak for my colleagues, uh, the superintendents in the state of Maryland. When I say this, we're greatly appreciative of the guidance from our state superintendent, uh, Dr. Karen Salmon, as well as our governor, uh, Governor Hogan, regarding the flexibility of not putting mandates on it. They have provided for us uh, 13 guiding tenants that need to be considered in the development of our plan. And all of us are using those. Uh, We're also looking at the CDC guidance. We're looking at the major pieces for instruction in the virtual environment. Uh, But the tailor, there's the opportunity for the acknowledgement of the individual challenges and needs that each community has, and that'll be advanced through our plans, which are due on August 14th. And I greatly appreciate the local control and the flexibility to do that, to work with my local board of education to, to accomplish the needs for Howard County, and every other superintendent feels that way as well. That is a recurring theme when MAKO is talking with General Assembly members, testifying is that local flexibility, local control, counties certainly share with local boards of education and local school systems that desire to have that local flexibility, local control, because you're on the ground level, you are on the front line, so to speak, and we can certainly understand that. I'd like to pivot a little bit. I mean, we know that logistically there's a lot that goes into this. But let's talk about a few of the specific challenges with virtual learning. I mean, we all understand, of course, and you've made clear, the first priority has to be the health and safety of students and faculty and staff. But one issue that I don't think is getting a lot of attention, at least so far, is what happens with parents who have to go to work and their students are learning virtually. I mean, what is the plan for ensuring that parents have access to childcare in the event that they aren't able to be home with their children while the kids attend school virtually. It seems like that's going to be a very big issue, not just in Howard County, but across the state going forward. That's an excellent real point. Um, I receive an incredible number of communications from our parents, uh, email, et cetera, and I have randomly been selecting uh, parents to call. I, I finished a call this morning for about 45 minutes with one of our parents who expressed those exact concerns. And I said, tell me specifically so I can hear from you specifically what your concerns are. And, and, and this is not over-exaggerated by, by any stretch of the imagination when you talk about this, is that parents are struggling uh, as far as working two jobs. Many of our parents are working more than that. 
Uh, now the process of normalcy as far as schools has been halted and they have to shift to provide support to their children. So without the adequate daycare, without the actual uh, technology supports to do that, there's been a shift and it's just disrupted every family in the state of Maryland who has school-age children to readjust to a new normal. And daycare is a component of that. What I can say in Howard County is that we have a partnership with Parks and Rec to provide a level of childcare in all of our sites throughout the county. But in this environment, we're not quite sure if that's going to meet all the needs. So in many ways, our parents have to make shifts by uh, working with their family members, making adjustments to their work schedule, and to provide the support necessary for their children. That is a major focus for all of us, but we're, there's only so much that can be provided, uh, and there has to be a partnership with others uh, to ensure that we're meeting that need. Yeah, it certainly is going to be a concern moving forward. And hopefully the resources are there and, and people have the flexibility and they can rely on family members. But but this has to be at the top of everybody's mind. And I, I am sure more people will be talking about this. I mean, you mentioned families are struggling across the state. People need to go to work. I mean, a lot of people have even lost their jobs. So now trying to get back to work and also having to worry that your child is at home. And if you don't have that support, I mean, it sounds like at least in Howard County, and I'm sure in every county, the school system is working with the resources that they have, tapping into every resource they can find. But I just think that childcare is is got to be a huge concern moving forward. And I really feel for all the parents who are going to be in a really, really tough spot in the case they don't have a family member to rely on right. uh, to make right. sure that their kids are at home learning and, and being successful. Yeah, and let me go just a little deeper because this is extremely important to all of us. Uh, when we think of Howard County, oftentimes people be believe that this is a very affluent county and in many ways that it is. But I constantly lift up the fact that 23% of my students in the Howard County public school system qualify for free and reduced meals. The agenda of equity and the advancement of equity is a major component of our plans. And so that when we're thinking about the challenges of individuals who are living in poverty, what happens to them as they are frontline workers? There's a variety of challenges and concern. How do we provide supports uh, that allow them to continue to be engaged with their child's learning? And my biggest concern that we're monitoring closely are the children that experienced challenges before the pandemic are experiencing greater levels of challenges and that they may drop out of school or they may, they may lose the, the interest uh, based upon the challenges that their families are having. So as a state, we have to lift that variable up heavily and say, how are we going to respond to the individuals who have the greatest challenges within our state? So now we're treading into the, the other side of this argument, if uh, this sort of almost impossible policy debate about how to best deliver education right. under this challenging set of circumstances. If getting the kids to school with the, the school bus issues and thinking about plexiglass and masks and so forth seems insurmountable, you're still left with conundrums like what, what do you do about students who, you know, who don't have the means or don't have ideal access? Right. I, I mean, I'm sure your school board and you have been giving thought about students with special needs as well, who, who may be even more reliant on face-to-face -face and hand-to-hand -hand help than, uh, than the, the run-of-the-mill student. That's got to be another challenging part of this decision as well, right? 
Absolutely. But, and I think, you know, as we're looking at this globally for the state of Maryland, every county council member, every county commissioner, every county executive, every elected official really needs to focus on the digital divide and understanding the tools that we need to really advance as a state. So when we're looking at breaking those challenges down, when we had, when schools closed on March 13th, Howard County was not prepared with the devices that we needed for the individual Chromebooks and computers to provide for each one of our children. Uh, I was very fortunate based upon some budget savings that my board supported my purchasing of an additional 20,000 Chromebooks in the initial phases. We pushed out in Howard County with 60,000 students, 18,000 Chromebooks to our students who had need. Not to mention the challenges with connectivity uh, that we experienced. So the first thing to order to have a virtual environment is the understanding that every child in the state of Maryland must have, we, we must uh, uh, eliminate the digital divide by ensuring access to the internet and access to the devices necessary. And then as we build further, how do we then provide supports for our students who have additional need for support, such as students who are defined as, uh, who have IEPs in our special education arena, our ESOL students, English speakers of other languages, uh, a variety of other concerns, and how do we provide that differentiated level of support? Because the gap, as we're talking about the summer slide, I've redefined it as the COVID slide because we have <laughs> nine, nine weeks of instruction combined with the summer. So this is going on almost, you know, we're, we're looking now 16, 17 weeks uh, and how then we start off the school year and a reassessing of where those gaps are. It's a great concern, but as a state, I, I, we, we need to rally around ensuring that our children have the basic foundational tools to be uh, at the optimal level of uh, learning during a virtual environment. And our teachers need to be equipped with the supports as well. We found that we had a number of our teachers who live out of the county who didn't have internet connectivity as well. So we have to take care of our teachers and our students during this time and provide supports to our families. So, I, I mean, all those considerations are essential. Um, I, I guess the question of the digital divide is multi-layered as well. And the, the school system has a role. Uh, I know in, in Howard and in a number of other jurisdictions, the schools have said, we've got to make sure that, that families have access to just access technology. Let's get Chromebooks or, right. or you know, devices into families' hands. But the last mile development is part of this. And that's, that's a bigger issue than the school board or the county government can really slay here. That's a pretty big dragon. If you just can't get two bars from your house and you need to right. drive to the library, that's a whole different learning setup, right? <laughs> that, that is correct. And, and we've found that uh, with, I mean, the data that we pushed out with our initial survey for individuals who needed Chromebooks, that was just as prevalent for our staff members as well. So you have to provide the tools for the individuals providing the support to students. You can't be uh, eliminating that thought process. But it, it's just for me, uh, it is non-compromising right now that we must provide the tools to our students uh, that have to occur and the training uh, for our staff to provide a more robust offering than what we did in the spring. And Dr. Maderano, I know that your school system is working to provide hotspots for students and, and staff who may not have access to high-speed internet. And, you know, I think that's something that a lot of us are going to have to grapple with as we move forward. And it's important to point out, too, I think a lot of people think that, 
you know, the, the digital divide is only prevalent in rural areas. And that's just not true. I'm yeah. sure you've seen that with your surveys as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just something that um, I continue to carry in every opportunity I can to communicate with our community at the state level, that we now are well into the 21st century. We're 20 years old now. Uh, there should be no question about internet connectivity uh, and access to devices. It, it just should be non-compromising. And it's something that can be done. I mean, that's a tangible that we can provide this. We have partnerships with uh, Comcast. We have a foundation, Bright Minds Foundation, that is collecting donations. Parents are trying to provide the support, uh, mainly based upon the fact of uh, not every child having access. Uh, and again, I keep emphasizing teachers as well. We can't forget that the individuals providing supports have to be supported in this in a variety of ways. I guess as we look to the next couple of weeks, um, listeners of this podcast are probably include some county leaders and decision makers, but also other people who are just interested in Maryland policy and politics. Um, we're going to see more and more jurisdictions announce what their plans look like, whether they're remote or hybrid or some sort of staggered in person. What do you advise us to be looking for? We love getting insight from from people in the field saying, here's, you know, here, here's what to watch for. Um, what should we be listening for and, and, and watching as, as this gets unveiled over the next couple of weeks? I think first and foremost is be very cooperative with each other. And as we provide this, that we, we are all in uncharted territory. Uh, speaking for all of our superintendents, the need for support uh, from our electeds and our community members as we are redefining education in the state of Maryland. And through this process of, of moving forward, incredible opportunities for innovation. How can we do this? How can we break down the barriers that need to, to be defined? And, and I've put those in several different prongs. First, ensuring uh, safety of our young people and ensuring that we have the PPE and never putting our students and staff at risk, leading with that first under the safety areas looking in the areas of um, operations. What do we actually need to make this happen uh, from the instructional piece? And I've, I've talked extensively about the digital divide to really lift that up and have quality conversations with your local superintendent and your electeds and really rally behind that and support young people uh, that don't necessarily have access to all the supports that are necessary. And then as we move forward, look for opportunities for enhanced partnerships uh, with community members. I'm looking to leverage the support of already a robust partnership in Howard County. But what things can be done differently for after school programming, additional supports that need to be there? Because just because we're in a pandemic doesn't mean that challenges that students were experiencing before the pandemic have gone away. I've been concerned about child abuse and neglect, students who are homeless, uh, students who need uh, support with meals during the uh, pandemic in the spring, uh, we pushed out in Howard County 1.1 million meals at 14 sites. You have to acknowledge Maslow's basic needs of hierarchy, taking care of basic needs as we continue in the instructional program. So there are some real opportunities for policy development and then future thinking as well. I'm not looking just for the here and now. 
I'm trying to shift the whole delivery model that we wean ourselves from textbooks and we use the development of our technology uh, as a way to use open source information. And I'll give you an example. For example, in our textbooks, you would not find memorialized these two pandemics, one, the murder of George Floyd in terms of the racial injustice, that will be in none of our textbooks, and the pandemic. So our teachers are going to have to be trained uh, to make certain that they're accessing information from the internet. And we want to shift that delivery for the future for the relevant information. And then secondarily, uh, like other states in, 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 the, uh, in the United States, and my work as state superintendent in West Virginia, was that we had reimagining time where on, a, on an inclement weather day, close for inclement weather, but shift over to virtual learning. And then you don't have to go through that, that madness at the end of the year hmm. and making up a day at the end of the year when it, the instructional right. pieces don't matter. Move this forward as in a way to look at the future of improving education in, in, in the state of Maryland not just the here and now, but using these as opportunities to be innovative for the future. And that's how we're thinking in Howard County. I, I would have to say um, there's an awful lot in what you just walked through about context and lessons learned and so forth that I think we could transpose right out of education and schools and place it into a conversation about um, our lane of county government or probably business and just about every field, um, you, you know, we, we don't want to make light of an awful situation for a lot of families and a lot of businesses, but we are going to come away from this with maybe some barriers broken down. So right. yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll learn from this, but understanding the context that everybody's making tough decisions, I think is a really foundational idea for every level right now. It's, it's, those are points well taken. Yes, thank you. Well, Dr. Moderano, thank you so much for being with us today. I think you've made clear here today that schools provide a lot more than just academics to children. You know, in addition to reading, writing, and math, they learn social and emotional skills, they get exercise, access to mental health support, other things that just can't be provided with online learning. We really appreciate you being with us today. Before we let you go, are there any closing thoughts that you have for our listeners? In this process, uh, you know, as simple as it may sound, we're, we're all in this together. And I recognize the fear of families, the concern of families, the anger of families, and recognizing that your superintendents, your leaders in your school systems, your principals and teachers are building a whole new delivery model. And the more we can cooperate with each other, with this child at the center of our thinking, the better off we're going to be at our, in, in our state. And I am convinced that we're going to come out of this uh, in a very positive way, using this opportunity of great challenges to provide opportunities for innovation, to make the delivery model even better for our children. As we scaffold supports to overcome the achievement gaps, which have been highlighted, taking care of our children, providing the supports is what Marylanders are all about. And I hope that through this process that we can be cooperative as we move forward in the best interest of our students. And that's all I hope for. Dr. Moderano, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed my time with you. Thank you very much. All right, we'll go ahead and take a break there. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about school reopening. We'll also get into elections, all that and more after the break. Stuck inside and feeling helpless about the coronavirus? Wish you could do more to help? Well, here's a simple step that can make a difference for the next 10 years. Just fill out your census at 2020census.gov. The census determines how many vaccines we get, how many hospital beds, and how many school lunches. The more people complete their census, the more federal funding we get for all of those things. 
Please go to 2020census.gov right now and complete your census. That's 2020census.gov. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. We heard from Dr. Martirano on the first half, and now we're going to bring in Drew Jabin. She covers Mako's education portfolio to get her thoughts on what's going on across the state when it comes to school reopening, etc. Drew, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course. Always excited to be here. And so I guess the first thing we should point out, Michael and Drew, is that county governments have a unique role in Maryland when it comes to schools. We provide significant funding to our local school systems, but we have no say in curriculum and school reopening decisions, et cetera, right? So while we provide funding, that's why we had Dr. Moderano on to talk about what kind of goes into the thought process of school reopening, because that is not a county government decision. Right. And, and that's, that's a weird, one of the weird facets of our blended government in Maryland is that there's a fair number of buildings out there that say the name of the county on the building or on the letterhead. And it's easy to think, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna write a letter to my county commissioners and let them know I'm mad about this thing that's happening at social services or at the public schools or at the library. And those are basically autonomous units of government that are funded and supported by counties and county leaders, but they're delivering services sort of independently of us. So the schools are their own entity for decision-making and curriculum and that kind of stuff. We work hand-in-hand in trying to serve the same community, but it's, it's the superintendents and the school boards making the call on this kind of stuff, even though people are, in fact, sending letters to their county commissioners and their council members and so forth. It's really school stuff. Right. And so, Drew, I know that you have a great piece on the Conduit Street blog that details school reopening plans across the state. I know you're updating it regularly. I said on the front half that nine LEAs made a formal decision about how they will educate students in the fall. And I think I may have been a little bit off there. What have you seen so far in terms of school systems, school boards coming out and announcing what they're going to do in the fall? Yeah, so today is July 23rd. It's up to 10 counties now, large counties, small counties, urban, rural Everyone so far has decided to go virtual for the beginning of the fall semester, if not the entirety. The deadline to submit plans is August 14th. So basically, as I'm sure you heard from Dr. Marrano earlier, each local education agency is in the process or has already voted on a plan to educate students in the fall, basically under the guidelines that MSDE, the Maryland State Department of Education, sets. So these are all due to MSDE by August 14th for review. Andrew, Michael mentioned on the first half that the governor and superintendent Karen Salmon yesterday evening had a press conference where they announced some additional guidelines for local school systems and following CDC guidance, et cetera. But there are also some guardrails that they put up, correct? Can you get into a little bit about what was announced yesterday, July 22nd? Yes. So Dr. Salmon, she reiterated her previous statements that locals will need the flexibility in determining how to reopen for their own counties. So there's been, there's been quite a push from education advocates around the state to mandate statewide virtual learning. And yesterday, Dr. Salmon addressed this. She reiterated previous statements that locals are going to need flexibility in determining how to reopen. She also, as you mentioned, announced some guardrails, including guidance on mask usage and what to do in the case of a positive test when schools do reopen. Dr. Salmon also explained that 
LEAs will need to meet a series of benchmarks in order to reopen, which include incorporating equity as a component in the local recovery plan, adopting and following health procedures that are outlined by the CDC and MSD and local health departments, ensuring transportation is safe for all students, basically a bunch of things to ensure the safety of everyone involved in the process of reopening schools. I think we have to imagine that in the event we have Maryland districts who decide to, to do in-person schooling either in some sort of staggered way or as an opt-in or some combination of those things, we, we have to imagine that even those plans will have to be fluid, right? Even if, even if a county looks at their positivity rate and their cases locally and they say, we think we're at low enough risk that we can do in-person schooling as a component of our offerings, that calculus might change if you end up with 11 positive cases in one elementary school, right? And then suddenly you've got six pods of kids who need to take three weeks off. Yeah, definitely. Yesterday, as I mentioned, they put out the paper that outlines the response to a confirmed case of COVID in a school, childcare program, youth camps. It says that you need to communicate what's happening, notify the people who must be quarantined, and then the actual process of isolation, exclusion, quarantine, and then the return. I think that the bottom line here is that this is unprecedented. As Dr. Martirano mentioned, everybody is doing the best that they can. There are so many challenges when it comes to doing this. And I think that he made a good point about everybody coming together and trying to work toward a common goal. Again, everybody wants kids back in schools, but I think we need to understand the challenges here and try to provide support in any way that anybody can to our local school boards and LEAs to make sure that they have the support that they need from the community to get these kids back in school. One thing that we talked about on the front half and that I want to get back to because I think it is super important One thing I didn't hear last night from Dr. Sam, and I think someone may have asked a question about childcare. Dr. Martirano mentioned that the Howard County school system is doing everything they can to work with community partners, but that a lot of this will fall on the families of children who are going to be distance learning. I can't get over the fact that we don't have a plan to do this, and this probably goes back to this being an unprecedented situation, but I want to get both of your thoughts on how much of a challenge this is actually going to be whereby parents need to go to work, and if their kids are home distance learning, especially younger children, how are they going to make sure that they have the childcare that they need, again, to be successful and to make sure that these children are on the computer and distance learning from home? You're, you're completely right. This is a big topic. It hasn't really gotten the attention that it needs. So most school reopening draft plans have a potential option of a hybrid schedule with AB days for students or AB weeks where the children would come in a couple days a week and learn virtually the other days. When you think of childcare, you think of very young babies, infants, children, but there's plenty of school-age children who are not going to be able to be left alone for a typical workday. So what do you do? Childcare centers are already kind of struggling through this pandemic. And this is just, it seems like another huge thing to kind of work through. Right. And uh, it just, it just seems to me like this is an issue that's bigger than the education system. It's not like there's an obvious ask here that citizens just want the schools to offer 
this thing and everything's going to be fine, right? It, it's not like there's room in the schools to have a childcare center or, or, or something of that nature. So, the, you know, the, the way to piece this together isn't, hey, school boards come up with a plan. Um, they've got to be mindful of it, but I, I just, I, I don't see how it can come together. You're going to end up, I mean, don't you think that we end up with in areas where the schools are, are virtual, either exclusively or primarily, we're going to end up with just thousands of families scrambling to put together some sort of childcare arrangement. And we'll see sort of an underground market develop. That has to be how this goes, right? You'll end up with one family in the neighborhood who agrees, we don't have a license, but we'll watch six neighborhood kids during the day while the parents work because that's the only way to make, you know, to make the Tinker Toys come together here. I, I, I have to think that that's basically the, the unwritten plan at this point. It's not a government plan, but that's going to be society's plan is about a, a lot of informal relationships here. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's the only way this works. And I know we heard from the MSEA, the teachers union in the state, calling on the state to do sort of what they did for the first responders at the beginning of this pandemic was is to provide childcare. But we know, Drew, you mentioned earlier that childcare providers are already struggling to to meet the new guidance, you know, within the pandemic to to take care of the kids, the toddlers, the babies that they already have. So that doesn't seem like it, it's going to be a possibility. I agree with you, Michael. This, these are going to be a sort of patchwork across the state in terms of how parents are making sure that their kids are supervised during the day and again that they're learning. I also want to get both of your thoughts on I think Michael, you raised a great point. We talked about school buses. And I'm interested now in whether the state does have enough school buses if everybody decided we're going to go back to in-person learning and we're going to have to get these kids to school with the understanding that a typical school bus that could hold 50 or 60 kids is now going to hold 12. Logistically, I don't see how that works. Drew, have you heard anything about transportation? I know that's got to be a topic that's at the forefront. Baltimore City has a unique situation, but all the other school systems, I mean, when it comes to school buses, that's got to be a part of everybody's plan moving forward. And even if they go to in-person learning in the spring, assuming that we don't have a vaccine and that we're still going to have to practice social distancing, what are they thinking about in terms of getting kids to school? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely going to be an issue. There's just endless concerns and logistical challenges with reopening. School buses will likely be down to 25% capacity. So either they need to make more runs and then who sanitizes them in between? Or do you need more buses? And who pays for all the fuel? And I, I mean, you can go on endlessly. To me, I mean, I don't claim any expertise here. I'm, I'm just, you know, just doing like the cocktail napkin level mathematics here. You end up with an empty set of answers, right? I mean, <laughs> if, if you're in a circumstance where social distancing is a necessity, if that's where you are, I, I just don't see how you can do it. I don't, I don't see how you can even get a third or a half of your kids into school for an in-person learning environment. If, if the purpose is for the kids to be together, if you, run, if you have to run the buses in three or four waves from 6 o'clock in the morning to 9.45 and then start taking them home at 12.30 in the afternoon because you only have so many buses, you're not going to have anything that looks like an ordinary school day independent of plexiglass dividers and six foot spacing and pod learning and all this other stuff, just 
the simple arithmetic of school buses seems to say this almost can't work. And I mean, we, we tend to be sensitive about cost and mandates and so forth, but this is just, just, the, you know, just the existence of enough buses and drivers to responsibly get the, the students into the schools, right? It's just, it's not there. Right. And I mean, even if you could, if you had all the money in the world, which obviously counties and the state don't right now, even to procure enough school buses and find enough drivers, I think you're right. I don't think that's a possibility at this point. So even beyond the health and safety concerns, there are logistic challenges here that we don't know. We don't know if there is a real solution. And again, this goes back to maybe giving some of these folks some slack and understanding that Everybody's doing the best that they can. Everybody wants the same thing. We want to make sure our kids are back in school, that they're learning, that they're doing the best that they can. But this is a fluid process, and it's going to continue to be a fluid process. I agree with you, Michael. Even if a jurisdiction decides we're going to try to do some in-person learning in the fall, things could definitely change between now and then, no doubt about it. I, I think the Newtonian example of every action has an equal and opposite reaction, or in this case, like a multifold and super complicated reaction. I think that analogy was right on point. Better than my onion. Drew, any closing thoughts on this topic, getting kids back to school, education-related issues before we move on to probably one of your favorite topics, elections? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my closing comments basically are that, like everyone said, it's a fluid process. Superintendents elected officials, everyone is doing their best to keep everyone safe. These are not easy decisions. They're not made lightheartedly. Everyone's just trying to stay safe. And it's going to be a process. It's going to take some time to really figure out how to move forward. And, and I guess the bottom line is it, it doesn't sound like the governor is interested in mandating distance learning or in-person learning across the state, it does sound like he's going to leave that decision up to the local school boards and the boards of education, right? I guess that's a good way to close this out. At least that's what we heard from him and the state superintendent yesterday. Yes, definitely. And I will keep updating the Conduit Street blog so that all of our readers can find the uh, newest news on school reopening plans per county. And I was being sarcastic when I said elections is probably one of <laughs> Drew's favorite topics. And I don't know if people caught that, but certainly for me, it's near and dear to my heart. I cover this portfolio for Mako. Michael and Drew, this is an evolving issue as well. This is very fluid. And when it comes to elections, there are a number of issues in play. A lot of them have to do with the same concerns that schools have, the health and safety of residents of Maryland, not children, but adults here in Maryland when it comes to voting. Michael and Drew, we talked before about some of the issues with the primary election back in June. I'll link that as well as your education article, Drew, in the school in the show notes. We don't need to get into all that again. But Michael, Governor Hogan released a plan. Essentially, his plan is to hold a normal election. The only difference here is that the State Board of Elections is going to send an application for an absentee ballot to all voters, right? So you'll get an application, but you're not gonna get a ballot. In June, people got ballots. This time, we are not gonna send ballots, we're gonna send applications, and then we are going to open up all of the polling places. So 
in that respect, it will be a normal election. Maryland already has no excuse absentee voting, so you're able to get that anyway, but the only difference here is that you're going to get an application without asking for one, and you'll be able to fill that out and send it in and get a ballot if you choose to do so. Right, and I guess like there's a, there's a moment for a pause there that I think is this is where, as, as a critical thinker and a listener of the Conduit Street podcast, that you you need to take a pause and understand that that's the pivot in this policy debate is the state is now going to send each voter to his or her last, you know, our best address for each voter. We're going to send that person a piece of paper that they can use to apply for a mail-in ballot, you know, basically an absentee ballot, but you don't have to claim any reason why you're asking it. You just ask for it. So is the process of sending people an application enough to check the box to say, okay, everybody who's concerned about in-person voting or concerned about public health exposure or concerned about accountability of their physical ballot and so forth, have we, have we satisfied that person's concern by, send, by giving them an opportunity to opt in to a mail-in ballot? And that's where you have both a practical and, let's be candid, a political difference of opinion about whether that's enough. I, I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you work most closely with our professionals who are the administrators of elections locally, but I think their point of view sort of lines up with what we've seen in similar areas. You know, we've, we've fought on legislation about the idea of maybe your electric bill could be something we all pay for together. Um, if we if we let people do an opt-out aggregation, wouldn't that work fine? And then the big policy debate is about what about all the people who don't respond to the mailer? They don't return the postcard, et cetera, et cetera. So if you send everybody an application, you're, you're almost certainly going to have an overwhelming share of people who miss it, they misplace it, they forget it. They don't focus on the November election in the 1st of September. They start thinking about it a week before or two weeks before or a day before or an hour before. And by then, it's too late to send in that application form. So you're going to have a big swath, probably the overwhelming majority of Marylanders who get that application and don't do anything with it. And then what? So that's the logic that leads you to the governor's plan is tantamount to a regular election because there will be so many people who need to vote on election day that we're going to need to have all the early voting. We're going to need to have virtually all of the polling places open. We'll need to have all that staff. And that's basically a function of letting people opt in to a mail-in ballot is different from sending everybody the ballot itself. That's a political difference, but also sort of recognizing human nature for what it is. Right, absolutely. And I will say that Mayo, which is the Maryland Association of Election Officials, that is the professional membership organization that is comprised of local election officials and boards from all 24 jurisdictions in the state, they all signed on to a letter warning the governor that his plan will be, quote, costly and efficient and unsuccessful. And they say that the directive is going to lead to confusion and long lines at polling places. So even putting aside the pandemic and the health and safety concerns that we talked about for schools, those, those concerns are still here. 
we are going to have long lines, according to Mayo. And I guess, you know, I'll break down sort of the justification here. Number one, there are concerns about PPE, personal protective equipment, the availability of, you know, plexiglass and hand sanitizer at every single polling place across the state. So they're worried about that. We know that we're going to have a shortage of poll workers, just like bus drivers in the front half. Dr. Martirano talked about that. They tend to be older. So do poll workers. And we already know that according to Mayo, some 8,000 of them have already said they're not coming on election day. They're worried about the pandemic. They're worried about the virus. They don't want to expose themselves to the potential risk of, of getting the virus. So we're going to have a massive shortage of poll workers. That number is growing every day. And then, of course, we have a shortage of polling places. We know that many community voting sites like schools, senior centers remain shuttered because of the pandemic. And we're already starting to see jurisdictions consolidate polling places. So the issue with consolidation, number one, you're going to have much longer lines because you're going to have way more people that have to show up and vote at a polling place. So instead of having five, you may have two. That's going to mean a lot more people and longer lines. The other issue logistically is that if you change a voter's polling place, you have to provide them with 30 days notice. That means more logistical challenges, more mailings for local boards of elections, which are supported by county funding. And if a polling place decides they're going to drop out within 30 days of the election, what happens there? So this is another situation that is fluid. Mayo has said that they want to send everybody a ballot, not an application. They, of course, want to have more in-person voting sites than we had back in June, but not every single polling place have the ballot drop boxes, have more in-person options, but we should still send everybody a ballot. We also, Michael and Drew, know that this is going to be expensive. The governor's plan, the State Board of Elections has already come out and said, we need $20 million in extra funding to do this. We know the state is struggling financially, but $20 million just to carry out this plan. And it's because we're essentially running two elections, right? You're going to send the applications. The, the mindset is that people will hopefully send them back so they can get an application. Well, then those applications have to be processed at the local level. That is a lot of work. And then, of course, you're running the in-person election. So the costs there are going to be significant, not only for the state, but at the county level as well. So, Michael, we talk a lot about, you know, elections and counties are mostly concerned with funding and administrative burdens when we talk about elections. But counties ultimately do run elections. This is going to be expensive and administratively burdensome at the local level. So I think those are the concerns that MAKO has here. And we can talk a little bit about the costs for counties in a second. But what is your what are your thoughts here about the cost and the administrative piece at the local level, which, again, our folks are actually running the elections? I guess I would say I think the introduction of the the relatively big ticket cost number, you know, twenty million dollars or thereabouts, as the price tag that the state board of elections and their staff have come up with to say to to conduct the elections the way the governor has has announced he wants to do them is going to be really costly, and so we're going to submit a budget amendment for a bunch of new money. And we don't know the details of how that's going to look, but $20 million right now is a big ticket when the state we know is already facing, they're already up against some really tough decisions like, you know, like undoing cost of living adjustments for state employees or employee furloughs or just discontinuing entire programs. I mean, that's the situation the state is already in. 
in part because we're pacing the floors wondering if the federal government's going to come with any with any assistance but it's it seems to me that that the policy debate a week ago was sort of what's the best way to do this and a lot of our local election administrators were really frustrated with what they heard from the governor now there's an extra wrench in the works if it requires an appropriation of a whole bunch of new state dollars to make this work is this an off-ramp for that policy? Does that become a reconsideration? Does that mean the Board of Public Works, with its three votes, is is really the place where this gets hashed out? Well, I mean, what if the Board of Public Works says no to the budget amendment or to you know to to whatever funding contracts or whatever would be required? They say we just don't think it's worth spending six million dollars on protective equipment for all these in-person poll workers, let's just do another paper, you know, let's do another mail-in primarily election. Let's just do a better job than in June. I don't know how that might have changed the decision-making process politically, but I think I think the dollar amount puts that back in play. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, at the local level, there will be a lot of costs for training, personal protective equipment, extra staff, should they be available. That's going to be expensive. And we know that the state board said that locals will be responsible for $3.6 million for the return postage for the two mailings that are going to be associated with the November election. The state will reimburse half of those costs. But again, processing the ballots that you're receiving and running an in-person election at the local level, it's going to be very expensive. We know that counties are facing the same budget crunch that the state is facing. I think that's a great point about the BPW. And Drew, you covered Board of Public Works for MAKO. They'll be meeting again in a few weeks. They just met yesterday as we record here on Thursday. But Michael, that's a great point. And I, I assume this will be in front of them. But look, the bottom line here is that we have our locals who are on the ground, these professionals. They are frustrated, Michael, like you said. They're very worried about actually being able to pull this off. I mean, even though there's a plan in place, the question is, can we even do this? We don't have the poll workers. We don't have the polling locations. What are we going to do? And that assumes that we don't have another wave of COVID combined with the flu in the fall, because if that happens, you really are, you're stuck because now that you haven't mailed ballots, what do you do if people physically can't go and vote? The issue here is that if we're going to mail ballots, we need to get a vendor very, very quickly so that they can start printing these ballots and that we don't have the same issues we had back in June. So this is, a, a again, a fluid situation, but the governor is defending his plan. He's the one who has the authority under the state of emergency to decide how this is going to work. And so far, it doesn't look like he wants to turn heel on this. It looks like they want to move forward, but we're just going to have to wait and see. Right. I, I mean, I guess to some degree in the governor's defense, um, what you hear from the letter the, the, actually the series of letters from the Association of election, election Officials is more or less saying, we still believe that a primarily vote-by-mail election is the best way to go and that in-person stuff should be just the very back end, right? Limited number of places and so forth. But, I mean, that argument is at its best when you have a lot of faith that that's going to work that we're going to get those ballots mailed out to the right addresses, to the right people, that they're going to get there on time, that they're going to be printed in the correct language, that they're going to say all the correct things, that they will, you know, they will check every box. And I mean, you, it's hard not to look right back at June 
and see this whole series of issues that came up in the June election that was effectively conducted that way, and that you had people in multiple jurisdictions waiting and waiting and waiting to receive their ballot by mail. They had to wonder whether they were going to be able to vote by mail because they really wanted to. Um, we ended up having you know, an emergency series of extra polling places in person in the city of Baltimore that were just sort of, in my judgment, hastily announced. And, and that seemed discordant. We had a lot of citizens complaining. I just got, I just got a ballot in the mail with somebody else's name on it who hasn't lived at this address for 14 years. What the heck is going on? You know, my, my son just got a ballot sent to an address in North Carolina where he went to college seven years ago. I mean, this, this whole list of, you know, Keystone cops kind of stuff happened just a couple of months ago. So to say that, you know, to say that we'll just mail everybody a ballot and it'll be fine. There is a point of view that says, well, we had a chance to do that and we dropped the ball. It's tough to say, let's just go back and try to do the same thing again. It's a very fair point. And there are, there is no doubt that we had a lot of issues uh, during the June primary. And I'm sure that's weighing on the governor's mind and on local boards mind and on the state board as well. Um, I do think that the concerns here are, you know, health and safety related. And again, just the ability to pull this off. Elections are so interesting. And I know I cover education, but so many of these balancing questions sound pretty similar to the issues that are happening in education right now. So probably the same guidance that Dr. Martirano left us with that, you know, decision makers are doing their best. We're trying to, to weigh all these things fairly and no one's ever really been through this before is, is probably worth keeping in mind. But I, I think where our local election administrators are coming from is, you know, they're just like our, our, our arithmetic of school buses. I mean, they're trying to do the arithmetic of election judges, right? I mean, yeah, they know the demographics of who typically volunteers to be an in-person election judge on election day. And they are heavily, heavily senior citizens. Let's face it. So is that the population we're going to count on to be the army of people who administer and manage every single polling place on November 3rd? Is that really our plan? And at the moment, the answer is kind of yes. And Nobody should feel great about that, independent of politics and state budget and all those sorts of things. Just, you know, just, just trying to be thoughtful about this should be on everyone's mind, too. So none of this is easy. It's a great way to leave it. None of this is easy. We talked about schools. We talked about elections. Drew, great point about how a lot of these issues are prevalent in both of those subject areas. And, Michael, I like the way you left it with everybody's doing the best that they can these are both fluid situations, and we're going to have to, to keep an eye on them and see how things shake out, especially if we do see another big wave of COVID-19 cases, if we see a surge, how that influences both of these policy areas moving forward will be fascinating. But we'll go ahead and leave it there for today. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can follow along on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. I will link everything that we talked about today in the show notes. But until next week, for Michael and Drew, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.